Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. By acceptance, I don't mean passive resignation. I mean an open-hearted willingness to feel what you feel. There is something absolutely inseparable in the beauty and the fragility of life. Part of being healthy in the world is opening up your heart to that reality. Then what you do is you are able to be. And when you are able to be, you are able to see things as they are. You know, that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. You know, this irony is that when you accept things, you then say, this is how it is. This relationship isn't working. This job sucks. I feel bad. And you're doing it in a way that's compassionate. That then opens the door to moving forward in ways that are effective and healthy and values connected and intentional. That's psychologist and author Susan David, PhD. And this is episode 254 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 254 of the show with psychologist and author of the game-changing book, Emotional Agility, Susan David. You can find her on Twitter. She's at Susan David underscore PhD. That's her. It's going to be a great show. What is this show? What is this podcast? This podcast is a conversation that you get to be a part of. It's a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better 
than yesterday. Sometimes this conversation will be with someone that you know. You see a name, you download it. I do the same. Sometimes it'll be with someone that you don't know. But either way, I guarantee that no matter what episode you listen to of this show, you will hear something that you need to hear. You'll hear something in the next hour and a bit that'll help you make today just a little bit better than yesterday. That is what I'm here to do. That is what this show here is to do. Uh, If you're new to the show, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Osher. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author from Australia. It's a big, big brown country, just under Razor on a map, questionable history when it comes to the indigenous population. Lots of potential. No, no, percent of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet live here and um we're enjoying a moment i guess we're we're kind of coming to grips with the multiculturalism in our community trying to figure out how that balances out with nationhood Hmm. But anyway, that's what we're doing right now. It's a very interesting place to live. Uh, I work on television here in Australia, currently hosting The Bachelor franchises. Yeah, the ones with the roses and the helicopters and the cheese platters. Uh, But when I'm not working on television, I'm either with my wife and kid, I'm swinging a kettlebell around a gym, I'm trying to focus... uh I'm trying to actually run, I'm trying to focus on finishing my book right now because I'm, I've already finished two books in the one week that I finished one book. and I haven't even finished the book. She wants to read it. I've got to finish this book. Um, or I'm on my bike or I'm busy making this show. And I've made this show each and every Monday for the last 253 Mondays in a row, give or take a couple for Christmas holidays. Um, also, here on this show... I've been talking quite openly for a few years now about what's going on in my head, just sharing each week what it's like to live with the brain I got born with. Um, It's been a way of opening up a conversation about mental health, about talking about living with anxiety and OCD in a hopefully a matter-of-fact way. And the hope is that it becomes more normal to hear these kind of conversations, so it becomes more normal to have these kind of conversations. And so far, judging by the feedback and the downloads, it's resonating. Uh, So much so that I wrote a book about what's going on, what it's like to be in a head like mine, and the book's been doing very, very, very well. If you haven't got a copy yet, you can get it right now, osherginsberg.com. There's even an audio book. There's a link right now. You can be listening to my voice, this voice, reading an audio book in 90 seconds if you wanted. Just osherginsberg.com, click, download, boom, 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 you got it. A massive thank you to the wonderful community that is building and nourishing itself around this podcast. It's very lovely to see at the Facebook group. It's full of love and support. You can be a part of it, osher.is slash FB group, or just search for Osher Ginsburg podcast in Facebook. It's really lovely to see what's happening. People are you know posting success stories there. People are posting challenges there. It's great conversations going on, a lot of great support. It's really, really nice. Uh, a massive thank you to the wonderful podsy pictures I've got this week. What's a podsy? It's a picture of what you're looking at right now. You're probably listening to this on a phone of some sort or a tablet. It's got a camera in it. Take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Send it to me, unless you're driving. Don't do that. Just email it. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to see you what's going on, where you listen to this show. Lots of baby walking photos, lots of pictures of people doing dishes, some people hiking in Canada listening to the show. Someone sent me a photo listening to the show on a bus in Norway. I've never been to Norway, but I do like Viking metal, so that pretty much makes me a Viking. <laughs> it's wonderful to see where you're taking these conversations. It's really, really great. But while it has been good to connect online, I really enjoy that. It's great to connect face-to-face. I had a great time meeting everyone in Adelaide the other week, and I'm thrilled to announce there's more live appearances coming. All tickets to all gigs are available at osherginsburg.com. I'm going to be in Rockhampton this week at the Black Dog Ball on Saturday night, and then I'm doing a speaking gig the next day. Uh, that's just a, 
there's no guitars in that one. It's just a talking kick. Um, so I hope you can come along to that. A couple of weeks later, we are bringing the live show back, an encore performance, Sunday the 28th of October at Giant Dwarf in Sydney. Mike Mills is on board. It's going to be brilliant. Mike Mills is toe hider, by the way. He comes and joins me on stage. Super cool. Cannot wait to do it again. Tickets for that gig osherginsburg.com Sunday, October the 28th. And it's a part of the Yak Festival. There's a few other shows that night, so if you are going to make a special journey into town for it, there's a couple other gigs beforehand. If you want to you know, spend a night at the theatre, there's, I think, like two or three shows on the same night and we're the last one. So you could pack a lot in into one night out of the, at the theatre. Also, Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne. Look, I can't confirm it because we haven't signed the deal, but just keep the 14th of December free, Okay. 14th of December, it's a Friday night. Just don't don't book anything. Just put it in your calendar. Like, don't do stuff around about 7 o'clock, okay? Somewhere in the, just sort of between the Como building and St Kilda. Okay, just, <laughs> that's kind of where we're going to be. Um, that one's a, like the Giant Dwarf gig. That's the show. That's the live show. That's the singing. That's the talking. That's the, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Well, come meet up. Come say hi. I'll sing some songs, tell you some stories, sign some books. It'll be good. We are working on other cities. I absolutely promise this is uh, an interesting adventure, getting to know all about the economics and indeed the logistics of independent theatre touring. It's a lot of fun. Um, But you didn't hear to come. You're not here to really talk about my live shows. You wanted to hear about the, the guest, didn't you? Absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Let me tell you about my guest today. I am so excited to be sharing my conversation with Susan David with you. Her book, Emotional Agility, was one of the books that I just devoured in the first few months of coming off meds earlier this year as I tried to learn more about my head and what actually goes on in my head when I get triggered by uh, panic or rumination. The, The wide angle view of Susan's work is that discomfort or indeed uncomfortable feelings that's the price of admission to a meaningful life. That's her overall kind of scope of her work. Now, when I first saw her TED Talk, which is brilliant, it's called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage, it's called. It has well over 3 million views by now. That, that was a real revelation to me, watching the way she spoke. Now, I say to Audrey all the time, I have these moments where it's, it's like we've hit the release button on our new pressure cooker. Just one small string of words or an idea can just instantly free me from the swirling vortex of rumination. And when I first heard Susan's hypothesis, this was like, it was like permission to have this discomfort in my body that I didn't have to be constantly fighting to push it away. And that indeed by absorbing it, and realizing not only that I was bigger than it, but also that it would pass, 
Well, that was incredibly liberating. Now, bear in mind that I needed to be on meds for a very long time until I was able to hear such things and have them stick. When I was ill, when I was sick and experiencing psychosis, it wouldn't have mattered if a Harvard PhD psychologist like Susan David sat at my kitchen table like she did and told me this like she does today, it, it wouldn't have mattered because the part of my brain that would have accepted that wasn't working. But thankfully, I've healed a lot and, and I'm getting about doing the daily work so that the ideas and concepts like the ones that Susan talks about can indeed stick and they do make a difference to my day. In fact, uh, just this morning, Audrey and I were coming back from the airport 6 45 7 o'clock in the morning after we spent a week away in bali which was lovely and i did something i really shouldn't have done on three hours of sitting in a chair upright on a plane sleep all right i opened twitter and i saw an article on twitter claiming that the trump administration in america was using an unstoppable and cataclysmic climate change projection of a seven degree celsius rise by 2100 as justification that car emission regulations weren't going to make a difference to anything. So let's just lift the regulations and just go to town on emissions since we're all going to die anyway. Now, if you've read my book, you'll know that me and climate change, well, that's, that's really my trigger. That's my thing. And indeed, the paranoid delusions that I was experiencing when I was going through the psychosis convinced me that such a scenario as the projection that they were talking about in this report was happening today. And I was the only one that knew about it. So as I sat in the back of a cab, my body just teetering on the edge of sunburn and a tan after a week reading my Yuval Noah Harari book in the sunshine, my wife texting the dog sitter next to me trying to reunite us with Frank later that day, the familiarly cool and punishing stab of fear just pierced my stomach. Crisp and precise, my intestines turned to macrame, my heart nearly bursting through my ears. I could hardly breathe and I look up at the peerless blue sky and then there's a man walking past me in a pair of shorts and the icky tendrils start to return into my brain. The fear starts to seep in. That blue sky is bad. It should be cloudy this time of year. Why is he wearing shorts? It's supposed to be cold. These two things certainly mean that this article is correct. Fuck, here we go. Now, what happens then is I'm completely disconnected to the present. I'm no longer in the cab. I'm no longer with Audrey. I'm no longer basking in the glow of a week in Bali lying around by a pool reading books with my lover. I've been hijacked. And now I'm imprisoned in a cage of future fear that feels completely real in my mind, utterly disconnecting me with where my body actually is. Now, thankfully, I, I, I have some tools at my disposal. I've worked a lot to research and find tools I can use. So, boom, number one, breathe. Get control of my breathing. Keep my breathing going. Where's my feet? Feel my feet in my socks. Get into this moment. Get into my body. Reach out and touch Audrey on the hand. Connect with her. And this is reality right now, not the one in 82 years from now, not the 2100 reality. Breathe some more. Where is this feeling in my body? It's in my stomach. What does it feel like? It's kind of cold. It hurts. Can I breathe and make some space around it? Can I inflate the space around it just a little bit? Just a little bit of space to make the tension release just a little. Just expand from the pain just a little bit. Ah, yeah. Okay, what else do I do when I get like this? That's right. I remember the two things, two big things, actually, that I learned this year. In fact, both of them from podcast guests, one from today's guest, Susan, and the other from two-time guest, Brandon Webb. So from Susan, firstly, I learned that uncomfortable feelings are the price of admission to a meaningful life. And yes, this is an uncomfortable feeling. And once I asked Audrey her thoughts, she agreed. Yes, it was okay to feel uncomfortable about this article. It was indeed a bloody horrible thing. 
it's okay to feel not good about it. And then from Brandon, uh, he's got a new book out called Mastering Fear. I learned this brilliant phrase. Yes, this is scary. This is scary, but I can handle it. So using those two things, I keep with the breathing, keep feeling my feet, keep reframing. And sure enough, something that used to put me into a spiral of doom for days on end, and at one stage would have got so bad that I'd seriously consider checking out altogether, well, that awful feeling passed in less than 20 minutes. So now I know that while indeed I can and will continue to experience these episodes, and yes, they get worse when I don't get much sleep, I know that when these episodes come, they aren't permanent and that with the tools that I have right now, I can handle them. It still sucks. It's still awful. It still disconnects me from my moment that I'm having with my wife, but they pass. And as we'll learn from this conversation with Susan today, it's important to be with these feelings because as she describes much better than I can, by being with the fear, you actually diminish the fear. When we turn from the fear, we increase the fear. And she explains exactly why that happens. Susan has an incredibly moving story, one that had me in tears at one point today. And her work is just so very important and has had such a profound impact on me that when I found out she was heading back to Australia, I knew I had to get her on this show. Susan's book is called Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change and Thrive in Work and Life. It's a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller and was based on a concept Uh, that Harvard Business Review has heralded as management idea of the year. Regardless, Susan is without a doubt the biggest deal, highest profile guest I've ever had on my show, and I couldn't be more happy to bring this conversation to you. If you're new to her work, then today it's going to be transformative. If If you're familiar with her work, then look, you'll love the way that she explains things using the real world case study of me asking about what happens when I fly into ruminating paralyzing fear, like happened in the cab this morning. It's not every day that a Harvard University PhD psychologist comes to your apartment to talk about groundbreaking concepts in managing anxiety across your kitchen table, but it is today, and I couldn't be more happy to share this conversation with you. So please enjoy Susan David. I'm just grateful you're here. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, is great. great. I, I loved your book. And I talk about it all the time on my show. Uh, and I'm just so grateful that, that you're here and we can kind of explore some of the stuff that you talk about a, a little deeper because I know the people that, that listen really resonated with a lot of the messages that you, that you talked about. And I'm, I'm just, just thrilled about it. But I'm, I'm super also thrilled that you have an Australia connection. I do. I do. I am so excited to be here. And yeah, I did my PhD in Australia at Melbourne University and am an Australian citizen and lived here for many years and consider this to be my heart home. Oh, your heart home. Yes. Ah, yes. The place I that I come back to that has yeah. good coffee and good connections and sea and sunshine and it's beautiful. There's two things you don't realize when you leave Australia. Number one, not everyone drinks like we do. <laughs> and number two, what do you mean there's not espresso on every corner? <laughs> <laughs> and certainly not in Boston where I live. So, yeah, I love being here. I come back here very often. You're, like people will complain about the weather in Melbourne, but you moved to Boston? <laughs> you don't even know. You don't even know. It's, it's, it's sad. But, yeah, it's, it's been great, actually. It's been a great experience and um, – just amazing opportunity and connection, but I do love my Australia. I would, I would do. I'd love to know just because I know a few people from there, but I'd love to know your 
I haven't really had a chance to talk too much about it on the podcast. Can you just describe a little what life, if it's all right, just, you know, just purely as a historical perspective, what was life like when you were a kid growing up in South Africa? Because you lived there under apartheid, didn't you? Yeah, so I speak about this a bit in my TED Talk, which was this idea of really I, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, but I was a white South African growing up in the white suburbs of apartheid South Africa. And, you know, it was a very, very interesting, sad experience because you grow up in a society where, like all of us, we basically are born into society and you don't know any different. And so as you grow up and you start looking around and you realize that you are completely segregated, that there is no movie that you will go to at which someone who's non-white will be. Uh, there is no love that is allowed across color. Um, and as you develop this growing sense of horror, and then you start developing a feeling and an action and an impetus about what it is that you want to do in that space and who you want to be. And so that was my experience. Um, How did your parents talk to you about it? Well, my my parents, you know, my parents had a very strong sense of, you know, that this was wrong. And yet at the same time, every single person in South Africa who was a white South African in these white communities, all of my friends, we all had nannies. Um, or maids, as we would call them, domestic workers, and they would often live on the premises. They would live away from their children who were not allowed to live on the same premises because there were very, very uh, strong restrictions as to who was allowed to live in the white suburbs. And so you you really, you know, you grow up in a situation where there's a particular context or way of being that's normalized, and yet you start recognizing that this this maid, this person who you love, who looks after you and who, you know, tends to your skin knee and who is there when you are sad, is not allowed to be a mother to her own children because her own children live hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away and she might see them once a year. And so it is this, you know, growing sense of dissonance that you experience and a recognition that this is wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. Sorry, <laughs> it's just uh, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, that really because it's it's so. F f f I, I didn't kind of realize that there was that. Of course, there was that. Of course, of there was there a was home. That. Of course, there was the help. Yeah. But at the same time, that you were in this situation of extraordinary privilege and utter segregation, yet right there in your home. Yeah. Tending to the emotional bonding gap between that which your parents could give. And you is this person who as a kid you bond with and you fall in love with and they teach you words and you, you know, you know their smell and their, their touch is comfort. And then that person, one of my, one of my best friends is a theatre director and um, she does a lot of South African theatre. She doesn't live there any longer, but she does South African theatre and she does a lot of testimonial theatre. And so what that means is she interviews people who've gone through these experiences. And one of the most profoundly sad memories that I have is of her interviewing a woman who had just had a baby and was nursing her baby um, and was a domestic worker in a particular family and then had to leave her baby to go back to her work to be this domestic worker and how in this house that she was working at 
uh, the White family also had a baby and how this woman would express her milk and throw her milk down the toilet every day and then give this baby a bottle. And that just that is like just such a, you know, physical but also metaphorical experience of this extreme division and humiliation and um, just kind of lack of sense of humanity. Mm. And then you grow up in the situation where this becomes normalized and you start becoming aware that you don't want that, that it's profoundly wrong. Um, But that when you're little, you don't have that awareness. No, of course not as a kid. And then as you go through, as you go through, I mean, I, you know, I guess it makes me, it makes me think about, you know, it's that is the most possibly the most extreme aspect of being of born being born into privilege. You know, it makes yes. me think a lot about yeah. about privilege and it, did it did it make you like see privilege differently as you as you as you move through life and being able to recognize privilege wherever wherever it was and see people who didn't realize they had privilege. I think it's definitely made me. I mean, you, you know. I, I don't want to sound, you know, I think there's a kind of moral connotation to this where it feels like I'm now enlightened and, you know, but, but I definitely, I think it's, it's made me far more sensitized to how language shapes culture, how privilege shapes what we see and what we simply cannot see. And that it's only sometimes when you move into different perspectives, and I think the same is true of, you know, even what goes on inside of us, when we move into different perspectives or when we, only when we get to really know the other and to think about and be with and to start harnessing compassion, we start to really recognize that that privilege is pervasive and it can hold us prisoner and it can hold society a prisoner and to think about what we may want to do to create greater levels of equity. When you first left South Africa, what, yeah. was the, what was the most profound thing that you noticed aside from the obvious? What Did you notice a difference around, around the community, around the way people work? Well, I think the most profound difference for me was uh, simply in my sense of freedom because there's something profoundly paradoxical that when you grow up in privilege but when that privilege comes through the oppression of the other you yourself become oppressed because you yourself are not able to have a free conversation Uh, you're not able to live in a society in which there is a sense of compassion and humanity. And one of the things that is uh, very true of South Africa is that there is an incredibly difficult uh, issue around crime. And so I, by the time I left South Africa, I had not physically been able to go for a walk for years and I'm talking about leave my house and go around the block or go to the shops by myself because there would be a very good chance that you would be attacked. You know, that was the crime rate when I left. And so my first experience was I moved to New Zealand and we lived in New Zealand for a year. And I remember going for a walk and just sobbing because it was the first time I'd been able to feel the air and the sun on my skin in years. And so there's this paradox. I think, you know, we create prisons of others and sometimes those prisons and those prisons of privilege also actually 
imprison us uh, in ways that are on a very kind of grounded societal level, they they debase all of us. Do you, that, that's, yeah. This is particularly true in my country at the moment when the way we are treating people who are fleeing extraordinary oppression and terror and, and imprisoning them and their children. Um, but we're doing it in little Pacific islands offshore, so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But yeah. I don't know if... You know the that the concept which which you just spoke of is is kind of removed, but yet that is exactly what's happening. So I, I, I mean, it's, it's sad. To, you know, I know we're here to talk about different things, but you know, it's it's so prevalent. You know, to me, you see, what are we doing to ourselves as a community when we allow this sort of stuff yeah, to happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, fundamentally, when we dehumanize the other, we dehumanize ourselves. You know, and we are part of humanity, and when we can't see the other then we enter a narrative in which we can't see one another and we can't see ourselves effectively. And, you know, I talk about this a little bit in my TED Talk. You know, I start my TED Talk off with this word, you know, sawubona. Sawubona is the Zulu greeting that you hear every day on the streets in South Africa. And there's such a powerful intention behind the word because sawubona literally translated means, I see you and by seeing you, I bring you into being. And it's this idea that if we can't see the other and if we can't feel and show up to other people in their pain or in their misery or in their suffering then we remove from ourselves the capacity to have another look at us in that way and we also lose the capacity for us to see ourselves effectively but we don't notice it at the time because at the time we're so scared and we're so afraid of people with different color skin than us or people who worship a different religion we're just trying to to keep my kids safe i saw a video on the internet i'm terrified that might happen here my kids and we think we're being we think we're doing protecting moves but what we're doing ultimately is what you're saying is yes we're building a wall but we're building a wall that also also traps us you you know you've so you've had this extraordinary experience and 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 view of of the world and there's then there's experience in in new zealand how did that if any play into what drew you towards, you know, helping others, particularly around, you know, in in the mental health space? Well, I firstly was definitely impacted by the context of growing up in South Africa in that environment. But a lot of my work was really informed by experiences that I had as a younger child. Uh, When I was 15 years old, um, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I, you know, remember very clearly the day my mother came to me and said to me that I needed to go say goodbye to him uh, because we knew that that was the day. And saying goodbye to my father, this person who had seen me, you know, the Sawabona, he had seen me, he had always seen me. And very much this experience of having someone who is this warm-hearted, warm-handed guide in your life, being there no longer, and then going to school where you slip from one subject to the next and the months go from one to the next and people ask you, how are you doing? And you just, are you okay? Because we live in a society that values positivity. We live in a society that values being okay. And so my experience really that shaped my entire life and my life's work was this experience of having suffered this incredible loss 
putting up this I'm okay, I'm okay, back home we are struggling. My my mother is grieving the love of her life. She's raising three children under the age of uh, 16, 17 years old. Uh, the creditors are knocking because she hasn't been able to have any financial security and my, hasn't, my, my father hasn't been able to keep his business going. And so I start to basically binge and purge, um, refusing to accept the full weight of my grief. And so I enter this experience of essentially like depression and and binging and and it's a food thing. A food thing, yeah. yeah. Well, it's binging control. and purging, and it's control. Yeah. And so my experience for me, which was such a profound experience, was I'm okay, I'm okay. But having a teacher at school, uh, this eighth grade English teacher, who basically just didn't buy into this story of triumph over grief, and who I still remember handed out these blank notebooks. And it was an invitation to the class, but I felt like it was an invitation to me, which was, you know, write, tell the truth and write like no one is reading. And what I did is in that blank notebook, which I still have to this day, I started to show up to myself. I started to show up to my grief and to my pain. And it was so simple, but it was a complete revolution for me. And that experience, what I realized later, a year later, two years later, was it was that showing up, um, dropping the struggle with what I thought I should feel and instead owning what I did feel and writing it down. That for me was pivotal because what that allowed me to do was to really understand that the narrative that we have in society about what's okay and what emotions you're allowed to feel and what you're not allowed to feel actually paradoxically undermine our resilience. You know, we think that when we try force happiness or positive vibes only, that it's healthy for us. But actually what it does is it moves us into a space of being inauthentic and not being able to deal with the world as it is. And so what I then realized was that that experience that I'd had with a teacher had somehow shaped me and helped me to be resilient. And I wanted to understand more. And from that, I then, you know, did my PhD in the area and became an emotions researcher and did my postdoc. And that that experience was really what galvanized my interest in this core idea, which has guided my life's work, which was this question, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive in the world? Because there's so much that tells us how to set goals and how to achieve health and wellness, but really how we deal with our inner world drives everything, you know, every aspect of how we love and how we live, how we parent and how we lead. Why is it, I mean, in all the research you've done, I'd, I'd really love to know this because I had to find this out the very, very, very hard way, I'm afraid. I had to go through a long <laughs> period of dealing with paranoid delusion and, and you know, enormous amounts of medication and all kinds of stuff. And it, the, the, I can break it down to this, Susan. The, the, the harder I fought the pain and the fear, the bigger and more powerful the pain and the fear got. I try – like it's only now – that I've done like a heap of work and it's, that's the only way it happens because I didn't know how to fix it. So I had to listen to other people and then do the work. And I still do the work every day. Yeah. Writing is a massive part yeah. of that, which you just mentioned. But it's only in going, okay, I have this thing 
And the way I would describe it is the, 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 the initial triggers, it was like walking around with a billboard in front of me. Like there's this horror doom cataclysm and then I cannot connect with the world because all I can see is this billboard. Yeah. And there's this horrible, frightening terror message that every single input into my brain, visual, auditory, sensory, everything is being filtered through this. Through all the work, that billboard's probably now about the size of an upturned phone on this desk right yeah. now, on this table, right? Every now and again, it blinks. Every now and again, my eyes go to it. I'm like, if I stare at that too long, it's going to get bigger. All right. I just have to accept that it's there. But it's only just accepting that it's there yeah. has things turned the shift. Did you find or can you explain why when we try and avoid these things and try to turn our backs on them, why do they then get bigger? So there a couple of reasons, but one of the biggest is um, – so psychologists call this amplification – and the idea, very simply, is that, uh, you know, your thoughts and your emotions on fact, okay, they are thoughts and emotion. Uh, and yet, when we try to avoid, amplification is essentially this, that it takes cognitive resources to try not to think about something, okay, or, or to try to push it aside. So imagine you are on a diet and there's a delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator, the more you try not to think about it, the more you dream about it, the greater its hold on you. So what happens is when we try to push stuff aside or struggle with it or tell ourselves that we shouldn't feel something, that actually takes cognitive resources. And those cognitive resources then lead to a, a leaking effect where this very thing that we try to push aside actually comes up and comes bigger. And I'll give you a very simple experiment. If you say to someone, don't think of pink elephants or pavlova <laughs> yeah. for the next minute. And I've done this experiment even with, you know, high-functioning executives. Don't think of a pavlova for the next 60 seconds and I will time you and every single time you think of a pavlova, I want you to do a little scratch mark on a piece of paper. The average is around 40 times in those 60 seconds. So, you know, the irony is that we think that when we try – push aside our pain or our thoughts or our emotions, or we try to cover over them with these positive affirmations of like, I actually feel terrible, but I'm okay, or I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. That actually, two things. Firstly, pushing away doesn't work. It leads to this amplification effect. The second thing that it does is you've got a situation that you are not facing. So you're trying to push away the symptoms, but it might be a situation where the job really sucks or the relationship just isn't going well. And so what you're doing is you are spending all your time and energy trying to deal with the thoughts and the emotions, but you're spending very little time and energy actually dealing with the situation. And so the situation often gets worse. It's fascinating that there's a two-pronged thing and that part of the actual wiring and circuitry of our brains, this leakage effect that you speak of, is something that we can't do anything about. And by making the noise louder in one aspect of our brain, like don't think about the big elephant, don't think about big elephant, it then jumps over from one channel to the other into the main the main screen basically in our brain is a pink elephant and then all we can see is this thing yes and it's interesting because there's so many you know references to this it, certainly in in sobriety there's the there's the common line of if I'm in a meeting my alcoholism is out in the car park doing push-ups waiting it's yeah. waiting for me yeah you know it's 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 that basically yes it's and it's like if I can 
I'm having an uncomfortable time. I'm just going to dive into Candy Crush and like lose myself on my phone for an hour. Guess what? Your problem's still going to be there. And yeah. next time you go back, yeah. it'll be even bigger. Yeah. So how do we make the leap? How do we turn and face it? How do we How do we well, get there? In, in my book, Emotional Agility, I talk about, you know, four very important aspects of emotional agility. And the first part is what I call showing up. And really the idea with showing up is that acceptance. And by acceptance, I don't mean passive resignation. I mean an open-hearted willingness to feel what you feel. Because life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. You know, you're going to be healthy and then you're going to be ill. You're going to be with people you love in relationships until the relationship isn't working or that person is there no longer. There is something absolutely inseparable in the beauty and the fragility of life. And so there's part of being healthy in the world is opening up your heart to that reality. And when you open up your heart to that reality in a way that is not about passive resignation, but it's really about a compassionate, willing acceptance, then what you do is you are able to be And when you are able to be, you are able to see things as they are, you know, that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. So this, this, you know, this irony is that when you accept things, you then say, this is how it is. This relationship isn't working. This job sucks. I feel bad. And you're doing it in a way that's compassionate. That then opens the door to moving forward in ways that are effective and healthy and values connected and intentional. It might be for some people, I mean, I I have had to come to acceptance twice in my life, once over my drinking and then and then I had to do it all over again around my around my mental illness. Because yeah. with every fibre of my being, I did not want to have psychosis. I didn't want to accept that I yeah. was having this, all right? To the point where I did the classic, Susan. I he gave me this he said, Here's the drug, it's an antipsychotic, take it when you need it. I was like, Okay then. Nanny psychotic. So I've got psychosis here and there. All right. So if I don't take the drug, I don't have psychosis. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. It ended up terribly. Um, but, <laughs> but we'll tie ourselves into. But I didn't want to. Nuts. I didn't want to accept it. it. Yeah. I didn't want to accept it. Didn't yeah. want to accept it. Um, but so, but like, thankfully, I'd already had to do the, the the heavy lifting part of learning the big acceptance around. Uh, about around my drinking. If someone's never had to, if someone's, this is brand new for someone, if someone's complete definition of my job sucks because everyone there is terrible and they've all got a vendetta against me, you know, just absolutely not able to see that, well, I, I did apply for it and I do show up every day and I do have the control to go or not to yeah. go. What's the tiniest sliver, the ittiest, bittiest step someone might be able to take towards acceptance if it's a kind of new concept for them? Well, I think one of the first things is um, just ending the struggle by dropping the rope. And what I mean by this is that when we start getting into fights with ourselves about what I should feel, and and this is, you know, some of this can apply to mental health, but some of it just applies more generally to our expectation, for instance, that we should be happy, okay, Mm. or that we should be positive. There's really fascinating research that shows that when people have an expectation that they should be happy, they try so hard to be happy And when you track those people over time, they actually become less happy over time because, you know, expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. And 
you prime yourself and you want this. And so you're not, you, you're not willing. And so I did a really interesting piece of research where I looked at 70,000 people and I asked them just a very simple question about what their experience is of their own emotions. Because normal everyday emotions like sadness or anxiety or frustration or anger, all of these emotions have actually evolved to help us. And this is something that we do not learn. We learn that there are good emotions and bad emotions, but our emotions have actually evolved to help us. And so when we only see our emotions as being valid if they're positive, what we do is we then push aside all the other ones. And so what I found in my research of over 70,000 people is that about a third of us, a third judge ourselves for having so-called bad emotions, these emotions like sadness, et cetera. And as soon as you start getting judgy on yourself for having bad emotions, those emotions become bigger. You're not dealing with the situation. So one of the first things is simply by naming what you're feeling. You know, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling like a bad parent. Whatever that thing is, simply naming it is very powerful and acceptance. And emotional agility is not only about the showing up part, but this is an absolutely fundamental aspect of emotional agility. Why is it that where those emotions, like I said, so there's three, I mean, there's obviously a spectrum, but, you know, uh, sadness, anger, uh, let's just, you know, fear, sadness, anger, fear, everything's fear or love, that's it. But like sadness, sadness yeah. and anger are versions of fear. All right. We're told so much, don't exhibit those, don't show those outwardly. Is that just, Has that just evolved as a way of trying to keep large communities of people kind of happy and like everyone moving in a similar direction? Like, oh, okay, you know, Barry over there is constantly screaming and angry. If Barry, if you could be quiet, we could all get on with it and get on with the feeding and the clothing. Yeah, I think there is something to that. I mean, advertising, you know, advertising doesn't sell if it's to people who are sad. You know, we, we are fed an idea in our culture, which is that – happy people get on with things and that's mm. fine. But what is really interesting is, you know, if I'm feeling guilty as a parent, that guilt, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad parent, but that guilt is a core signal to my values. And I think this is one of the things that we don't learn about emotions, that we tend not to feel stuff unless we care about it. So when you feel frustrated about something at work or when you feel undermined, that feeling of frustration might be, I really care about this outcome or I care about being treated in a way that is transparent. Or if you feel rage when you turn on the news, that rage might be a signpost to you that equity and fairness are important to you. If I feel guilty as a parent that might be a signpost to me that I value presence and connectedness with my children. Now, if I just push aside that guilt and I say, you know, either, gee, that, that emotion is a fact, okay, which is, which is being emotionally inagile when you start treating your thoughts and emotions as fact. If you treat it as a fact, it's not helpful. But if you push it aside and just go, I'm just not going to go there, what that does is it actually stops you from saying, well, what could I do to bring me close to my values? How might I, even in the context of being really busy at work, 
be more present and connected with my children. You know, I'm traveling. I live in Boston. My children are at home. If I'm connected with that value inside of myself, what I might do is when I speak with them, not be looking at the internet at the same time. Or I might take an extra couple of minutes to record a little video for them to send it to them. We can do things in the moment that help us to be values aligned. But it's those difficult emotions that often signpost those values. And so when we push them aside, we push aside our capacity to actually be adaptive human beings. It's, it's so hard, though. If I'm, if I'm frustrated, all right, it might take me – I might not understand why I'm so – I just know that I have this – I don't want this thing to be happening. And I might just, like, then just get carried away. I'll get flooded – Words come out of my mouth. I might say something yeah. that will upset someone. And then it's not until sometimes after the damage has been done, Susan, that I go, oh, man, oh I'm doing that because I, I feel like you haven't, someone, I feel like you haven't seen me. Yeah. That's why it's, yeah. oh, it's got nothing to do with the other thing that I was yeah. crappy about. It's actually this. But by I then think, it's too late. Yeah, but I think this is a really important part of emo- emotional literacy and emotional resilience is when we grow up in a society that doesn't allow us to feel our difficult emotions, when we come home from school and we said to our parents, mommy, no one would play with me today, and our parent with the best of intentions jumps in, I'll bake cupcakes with you, I'll make a play date with the mean girl's parents, and they save us from those difficult emotions, we don't get skilled at being able to learn critical emotional skills. All emotions pass. Gee, I felt sad 10 minutes ago, but now I don't feel sad any longer. Gee, going for a walk helped me to feel better. So there is a whole emotional skill set that we need to learn and we can continue to learn in our lives. But when we don't stop and actually even say, what is this thing that I'm feeling? We just bypass it. We don't ever develop the skill set that is actually fundamental to our resilience, to our well-being, to our mental health, but also to our ability to flourish in our relationships and in our lives. You know, Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, describes this very profound and beautiful idea, um, this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. And in emotional agility, I talk about how this concept of being hooked. When we hooked, there's no space between stimulus and response. Okay. I'm angry. I'm going to lash out. My husband's starting in on the finances. I'm going to leave the room. I'm frustrated at work, so I'm just going to shut down. And so there's no space between stimulus and response. And a really important part of being whole, healthy human beings is to start learning better how to create that space between stimulus and response. This idea that when we show up to our emotions and when we show up to our emotions in an interesting way, you know, what you described is this idea that I was caught of God by my emotions. But actually, what very often happens for all of us in very patterned ways is that you'll be lashing out today because you feel unseen. But what you might notice if you slow down in your heart is that feeling unseen is a really important need for you as a human being and that it's not the first time you've lashed out because you feel unseen. So when we bypass that learning in ourselves, we think that the emotion's taken us by surprise. But actually, if we dig into our hearts and say, when else have I felt this? 
What is this thing? We start being able to track more when that emotion is about to come and we, we, we kind of tracking where we are in life and the emotion doesn't take us by surprise anymore. You, met, you, you, you write in, in, in the book, Emotional Agility, you write, you, you describe, and this is, you know, gave me great hope actually, Susan, because I'm like, good, oh, good, good. I, I, can, I can learn this stuff? Like you describe that like these are skills that, that can be learned. They're fundamental. They're fundamental skills and they can be learned. Because some people, we've, I, I've met them at work, I'm like, where did you learn to, how did you learn to deal with that? You've just like dealt with a whole room of angry people and you just walked in and walked out and everyone's different. How did you, like, I, it's like people, some people know how to do it, but you're saying that I can learn how to do that as well. These skills are critical and these skills are learnable. Oh, we know that they are. And the first part is this showing up piece, but there are other parts to it. I talk the second phase of emotional agility is this idea of stepping out. And really what I mean by stepping out is being able to create that space between stimulus and response. Because, you know, who's in charge here? The thinker or the thought? And when we're lashing out because we feel angry, the thought is in charge. And when we're able to say, why am I feeling this? What's going on? Who do I want to be in this situation? The thinker is in charge. And we get to that by creating a critical space between us and our emotions. And I'll give you some examples of, you know, very quick, learnable, helpful skills that people can use. Firstly, often what we do when we're feeling something is we use very broad brushstroke labels to describe what we're feeling. So a very common one is, I'm stressed. Okay, how are you feeling? I'm stressed. How are you feeling? I'm stressed. Every day we're stressed. But there is a world of difference between stress and disappointment or stressed and that knowing, gnawing feeling of I'm in the wrong career. Okay, so that's as an example. When you, instead of just saying everything's stressed, instead say, I'm disappointed because of X or I'm actually anxious because I'm in the wrong career. What that starts to do is that accurate labeling starts to activate what scientists call the readiness potential in our brains. It starts to allow us to shape goals and actions and complete your resume or your CV. It, when you start labeling something effectively, it helps people to understand the causes and the consequences. And I'll give you a very practical example. A couple of years ago, I was working with a client who always used to say to me, I'm angry. You know, I'm angry with my team. My team's angry with me. My wife's angry. Like everything was about anger. And I started saying to him, you know, what are two other options? I'm not saying that that anger is wrong, but what are two other options? If you were just going to widen the scope, what, what are two other options? And so he started saying, you know, maybe I'm feeling disappointed or Maybe my team is feeling concerned, you know, about this change. And maybe my wife is not angry, but she's feeling unseen, to use that language. And it was such a, an interesting conversation. And then probably about 18 months later, I had dinner with this individual who I was friends with and his wife. And his wife said to me, this had completely saved their relationship because she said to me what was happening is she would be a little upset about something and he would see the upset as you are angry and when someone says to you you are angry then you become defensive and so it was this complete escalation that always happened but when he was able to move from maybe you're not angry maybe you're sad or maybe 
you need a hug. It completely shifted the narrative of their relationship. So this is really powerful. And that's just one practical example. Mm. I've got others if they're helpful, but just you feel something, what are two other options? That's extraordinary. So powerful. And, and yeah, yeah, I don't know if you've been watching through that window right there, but you just described something that I have often done with my wife. <laughs> because of my, what happens is I have this preconception. I'm like, I, I react to what I think is she's seeing. I don't realize it. But what then happens is then she reacts to what I've just done and then I have manifested that into reality. Yes. I'm right. Yes. You know, but you I, are X. Of yes, course you're exactly. angry with me. Look what you're doing, exactly yeah. what I'm telling you. And then she feels weird because now she's like, I wasn't feeling this, now I am. I, did, I wasn't yes. before you walked in. Yes. And I've uh, I would love it if, if you could, like, because it is it is a part of my story and I'd love to know your thoughts. You, you've worked with many, many clients and obviously in your research you've been exposed to thousands of different cases. Uh, what are your thoughts at what point in, you know, these practical things that people can take control over and, and like actively pursue learning these skills and practicing them every day and trying to get stronger? At what point does medication play a part and when might medication play a part? So medication can very often play a part for people. Medication can very often be helpful for people, um, particularly, and it depends on, you know, it depends on what the person's experience is. You know, if we're talking about low-grade depression versus, you know, full-blown anxiety and so on. So I think, you know, medication can play a part, but you don't get through unless you get through. And what I mean by that is there's no shortcuts. I uh, remember when I was when I was little reading, um, well, not when I was little, when my daughter was little, I would read her this book. It's kind of a, you know, I'm not a hunting person, but the book's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Mm. And and it's this beautiful. It's one of those books. It's one of the greats. But that book, The Bear Hunt, you know, there's no going over it. There's no going under it. You've got to go through it. And isn't that it? You've got to go through it. There are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to whether it's, you know, depression or anxiety. There's no shortcuts to I'm in the wrong job. There's no shortcut to grief. There's no shortcuts. And we can only use the resources that are around us, whether that might be medication or it might be, you know, exercise is profoundly helpful for people or music. Like these things can really shift our experience. But in terms of our fundamental emotional skills, our resilience, our beyond, you know, mental health, like our flourishing, Mm. our living life and taking strides with our life, these things happen when we are compassionate with ourselves, when we are open to ourselves, when we are able to recognize that what we think and feel aren't the rulers of our action, when we connect with our values, which we haven't really spoken about, but is critical, and when we start moving in the direction of our values, even if it feels uncomfortable. Mm. This is the work of us, not ill, not depressed. This is the work of us as human beings, and there's yeah. no shortcut. Why is it important to explore what your values are? For many reasons. Um, one of them is just we live in a world in which social contagion, and what I mean by social contagion is that we very subtly in ways that we don't even recognize pick up on what other people are doing. So the most simple example of this is, 
you go to a meeting and someone's on their phone and you take out your phone. Or you go in an elevator and people are on their phones and you take out your phone. So what starts to happen? Social contagion is this really interesting thing, which is that human beings almost catch emotions and behaviors from other people. Uh, if you catch like a cold, like a catch virus, catch like a cold, like yeah. a virus, and and that sounds bizarre, but I'll give you some examples. Which is, imagine you are trying to be healthy, you're trying to lose weight, and you get on an aeroplane, and your seat partner buys lollies. There's been a body of research that shows that your chance of buying lollies increases by 70%. You do not even need to know that person. That gets even more frightening. Um, if someone in your social network puts on weight or gets divorced, you do not even need to know that person. It significantly increases the likelihood that you will do the same. And we've all experienced this. You go out for a meal, one person orders dessert, and now we all order dessert. So we've all experienced this. And so what starts to happen is we live in a world in which social contagion is pervasive and where social comparison, comparing ourselves to what other people are doing, is probably one of the to most toxic things we can do as human beings. But now, of course, we've got social media. So we aren't just comparing ourselves to, you know, the six-year-old geek who now has like made it through university and started a company. We are now comparing ourselves to 21-year-old multi-billionaires driving Ferraris. And so what we've got is on the one hand, this social contagion where we want things that other people want and we catch this need. On the other hand, we beat ourselves up and feel really bad when we compare ourselves. And so you start saying, what is it that's protective? And knowing who we are, what we stand for, what our values are, is one of the most powerful ways that we can come to life. Knowing that collaboration is important or equity or fairness or seeing the other or humility, knowing this helps us to make decisions where the rest of the world is telling us to do something different. And so values are often not spoken about in these kind of discussions, but they're actually fundamental because if you think about someone who is feeling really sad or really feeling down and that person just wants to stay in bed, as an example. Often what we land up having is we have these have-to goals. I have to get out of bed. I have to do this. I have to do that. And have-to goals actually undermine our ability to make effective changes because when someone tells you you have to do something, even if it's you telling yourself that you have to do something, you have to exercise, you have to never eat chocolate again, you want that very thing. If instead we start to connect with what is the value that sits underneath this difficult experience? Um, I, you know, feel really down and I don't want to get out of bed, but I value learning as an example. And if I just go out into the world today, I might learn something. What this allows us to do is make moves in the direction of our values. And it might feel uncomfortable and it might feel difficult. But one of the things I talk about in my TED talk is this idea, you know, that discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. You don't get to have an effective career or to leave the world a better place or to raise a family or to move forward in your life without discomfort. 
So if you can connect with a value that is important to you and you can move from this goal that is a have-to goal, a sense of shame and obligation into a want-to goal, a goal that is deeply connected with your values, then you can move forward in such um, more and healthier ways in all aspects of your life, you know, your relationships and your work and your well-being. So to let me just to see if I make sure I'm clear, like I have to goal means it might be I have to lose weight because I'm disgusting when I look in the mirror versus I want to lose weight because my kid's only six. But when my kid's 16, I still want to be able to run around with him. That's exactly the difference. And when you look at when you look at the the practical impact of what this means, people might say, well, oh, my willpower, you know, I, I've got this have to goal, which is I want to lose weight. And this have to goal is shame and obligation. The want to goal is this deeply held value that we've connected with. And then people say, well, you know, what if I want to lose weight and willpower is going to come into it? My willpower is going to save me here. But willpower actually doesn't work in any aspect of our lives. Um, it's really interesting. If you think you open a refrigerator and there's that piece of chocolate cake inside, your brain processes taste attributes 195 milliseconds before you even know you are making a choice. What this means is that your brain knows you're eating the chocolate cake before you even know that you are deciding whether you want willpower to come into force or not. So what does this mean practically? This means practically that when people have have-to goals, have-to goals actually ramp up temptation. They create resentment and they lead to a lack of sustained behavior change. So in the book, Emotional Agility, I talk about habit change, making values-aligned habit changes. Have-to goals actually stop our ability to create effective habit change. Want-to goals down-ramp temptation. Um, they actually allow for more sustainable habit change. And if you think about it, like, you know, for listeners who are thinking things like, well, you know, I have to go to this meeting today, or I have to be on dad duty, or I have to give this person feedback. These have-to goals can create prisons around us where we become resentful and like you go to the meeting, but you don't want to be there, or you give the feedback, but you give it really badly. Instead, if we think about what is our value here, the value might be fairness is really important to me. How fair is it if I don't give this person feedback? How fair is it to the team? How fair is it to everyone else? When you surface this want-to goal, it allows you to bring yourself more fully and authentically and successfully to the situation that you face. And this applies in all areas of our lives, our relationships and our health and our meetings and our parenting. Mm. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, like behind me right there, you're looking at three sticky date puddings that are left over from last night. We had a premiere party last <laughs> night. Uh, they're vegan, gluten-free, and they're amazing. And they've been staring at me all day, Susan. So one of the things that the research would tell you is that what you want to do is you want to have one, two goals, but you also want to shape your environment in ways that support your goals. So what I'm doing when I'm writing a book is I might have, have two goals, which is I have to get through this chapter and I just feel resentful towards it. 
if I surface the want to goal, you know, what am I trying to get out there? Why is this important? That's the want to goal. But what helps me to do it is cues in my environment. You know, I've got the the post-it note of my goals and my, so what the science would tell you is to throw those sticky date puddings away or to give them to someone who really needs them. We have made too many there for dinner tonight, but they'll be fine. You'll manage. But I do find that, I find that absolutely fascinating. The thing that about that, that your taste receptors have already decided you're going to eat that thing well before you've chosen to or not. Yes. That is like, if that doesn't say don't have bad food around, if you, this is your one to goal, I don't know what does. Yeah, and it's it's like 195 milliseconds. Wow. So I just, I do something similar where I'm checking into a hotel. Like whenever I booked the hotel, I was like, can you just take all the booze out of the minibar? Yes. Like when I check in, yes. like I'm not going to drink it, but I get exhausted by looking at it all day going, I'm not going to do it. It just exhausts me. Susan. And that's that pushing aside so, cognitive resource yeah. that we were talking so about what, earlier so, in the conversation. Sometimes what yeah. I do is I just I just pull the mini bar up with one hand and I put it in a cupboard Yes. so I don't have to look at it. Well, I did the exact same thing when I checked into my hotel today, not with the alcohol but with the, with the food, with the, the cookies, with the yeah. snacks. Please can you, you know, remove all the snacks from my room. And it's not that I have trouble containing myself with the snacks but at four in the morning – yeah. I don't want to be dealing with it with jet lag, with You're whether jet I want lag. the chocolate or not. Who's going to say no? <laughs> so, but this is important, you know, and this is, you know, this is like this, this process of emotional agility. There are four parts to it. There's showing up, which is about being open and willingness to experience what you're experiencing. Stepping out is being able to create space, that space between stimulus and response. And I gave the example of labeling, but there are other ways that you can do that. Walking your why is learning how to surface your values. Who do you want to be in the situation? And then the last part of that is moving on in which I talk about sustained behavior change and habit change. And there are, you know, really important things that the psychological science tells us allow us to either create and sustain new habits or that undermine completely our ability to do so. Around uh, sustaining habits and creating habits have only like in the last, I don't know, four months or so, I've been on a very, and this is kind of what I want to, you know, ask you about because you did mention it earlier. I've been on a very, uh, as part of managing life off, off of meds, exercise has been a massive part yeah. of that, particularly resistance training has yeah. been a very, very big part of that. Something about those big compound movements, it releases the things in my brain that I used to only get after I'd have to run when I could run. I'd have to get run for like an hour and a half before yeah. my brain would start to feel yeah. like that. But now within 20 or 30 minutes of, of squats and things like that, it's there. But I've started to build it up. Um, I have a habit trigger. When I turn my coffee machine in the, on in the morning, it started with three squats. It's now up to 20. All right? So that's what I do. Like I just, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that, about, about yes. build, building habit triggers yes. and, and putting those things in your day. So this is called... Piggybacking. That's it's got a name. It's got a name. It's got a name. It's called piggybacking. It's one of the most effective ways that we know we can change habits. And it's very simple. You've already got a habit in your day. Your habit might be making a coffee, it might be brushing your teeth, it might be having cereal, it might be putting your keys in a drawer. We've all got habits. And piggybacking is very simply where you add a new values aligned habit onto your existing habit. It becomes a no-brainer. So I'll give you an example. Earlier, I'd spoken about parenting. 
and being connected with your kids. So imagine every day you've got this value, but you come home every single day and you bring your cell phone to the table and you surfing and the kids have got their phones. And, and so now your precious time with your children is now squandered. So piggybacking looks like this. You've already got a drawer that you put your keys in every single day. And now all you're doing is you're adding your cell phone into the drawer. What's really important here is it's not just for the sake of it. It's a values aligned action that you're doing. And that becomes your habit. So this is called piggybacking. And it's just one of the one of the ways that we know people can very effectively change habits. You're trying to increase your fruit intake and you've already got your cereal. That becomes the habit. You're not trying to have fruit multiple times a day to start off with. You're trying to take what you've already got, what you're already doing, and add something to it. And it's very powerful. Tell me about uh, in the as far as because you mentioned it, and you you know I'd love to explore it a little with you. Um, you mentioned as an intervention, e- exercise. Yes. Why is this thing that we want to avoid so much so good for us? Yes. Well, it's interesting. There's people regulate their emotions in different ways, and some of those ways are very unhealthy: overeating, oversleeping, alcohol. Um, often these strategies are ways that we poorly and in unhealthy ways try to regulate our emotions. And so what's really interesting with that is when you look at those, what you find is that they, they do help us feel better for a period of time. But then when you start actually tracking this, like shopping is another, you know, you might feel a little bit anxious and you're procrastinating, you go shopping. And then what you find is that anxiety actually, as you're at the shopping center, that anxiety increases and increases. And you've got the sense of like, there's this thing I should be doing and I'm not doing it. So we often as human beings engage in these ineffective ways of regulating our emotions. They might feel better for a short term, but not in the long term. Then you start saying, what are effective. And far and away, the most effective emotion regulation strategy is exercise. And it could be going for a walk, it could be, but it both physiologically, they're the physiological changes, but it is one of the most effective. Another one that's very effective is music. It's a short-term strategy, but it's effective. Now, what's really important with exercise is even though exercise is amazing and music is amazing, if they are used to regulate your emotions and to manage the situation, but you are still avoiding the situation itself, it doesn't work. You know, you can run as many ultramarathons as you like, but if there's a relationship that is not working in your life or a job that is not healthy or if there's a child that you feel disconnected with, and it's upsetting you, that running is going to make you feel better for a period, but the only way through it is through it. <laughs> John Cabotin's right. Wherever, <laughs> wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you yeah. are. Uh, do you, the only do you way meditate? Through it is through it. I do. I yeah. do. Tell yeah. me about meditation. So I, I use meditation. I think about meditation and I think about mindfulness actually because mindfulness has become almost a, like a buzzword. I, I'm not one of these people, when, just so thinking about mindfulness specifically for now, who subscribes to the idea that you should be mindful in everything you do, you know, mindfully take out the rubbish, um, <laughs> mindfully brush your teeth, etc. Um, but mindfulness is a very 
important strategy to do what I mentioned earlier, which is create that space between stimulus and response, that stepping out where you're now on seeing the world from the perspective of your emotions. Instead, you're starting to notice your emotions. So what I mean by this is you gave the example earlier of being angry, you know, say being angry, angry with a wife or being angry with a loved one. And when we're angry, often we're seeing the world from that perspective. It's like, I'm angry. It feels, if we can start just noticing our thoughts and emotions for what they are, you know, I'm noticing that I'm angry. I'm noticing that I'm anxious. I'm noticing that I'm sad. It's actually a mindfulness practice because Mm. you're noticing the thought come and go. But it's very powerful when it comes to emotions. And, And this is why when you say something like, I am sad, what that makes it sound as if is if you are the emotion. I am. All of me, 100% of me is sad. I am angry. All of me, 100%. But you are not your emotion. You are you. And your emotion is a data source to be recognized and evaluated. But it's not you. And so it's really important that we recognize we are not our emotions. So when we start using a mindfulness skill of starting to say something like, I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing the urge to leave the room because I'm upset. Then you're starting to put your thoughts and emotions in their place, which is they're data, but they're not directives. (laughs) I see. Does right. that? Yeah, does that, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. data, yeah. but they're not directives to action. They're not telling you what you should yeah. be doing. So I, I think of mindfulness um, in that way. And I and in my meditation practice, often my meditation is often around this idea, which is, you know, what am I feeling? What am I noticing? Yeah. And then what is that thing that's that feeling? Susan, I'm, I could talk to you all night, but I, I'm just so grateful that you came. I really, I'm so really excited. Am. I loved your book so much and I got so much out of it and I'm just so grateful that we've had this conversation and hopefully so many people, because I can't explain your concepts. You explain them better than anybody else. So I can only tell people about, you know, and I, I credit your book all the time. I'm just so grateful that you came and that, that you're here and that and we did this. You're the Me best. Too. You're Me the too. best ever. Me too. Have a oh, great thank time. Thank you. And, um... Yeah. <laughs> Super excited. Thank the best, you. Best ever. I'm just going to, I'll quickly shoot a photo if that's okay. Yes. You're the best, you. Susan. Thank you. That was Susan David. You can find her on Twitter at Susan David underscore PhD. And her book is available everywhere that you get books. It's called Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change and Thrive in Work and Life. Check out her TED Talk. It's brilliant. Once you do, do the work. It's bloody worth it. I must thank so many people for making this show happen today. Not only Susan David herself for making the journey to come to my house, uh, but also her team. Uh, her incredible team that I mercilessly chased down in an effort to get her down and track her down to be on this show today. A big thank you to Rachel Barrett, my never-fail show producer that makes everything happen, and she managed to get Susan and me in the same room at the same time, which was incredible. To Andy Marr, who very kindly cut up this show, my audio producer. He made the show today while by a pool on holidays in Noosa on his weekend. So thank you, Andy. And to Toehider for making the music that makes this show. Thank you very much as well, i got to say, to everyone that came to say hello in Bali when we were away, especially those people who found the book helpful. Turns out I've 
I've somehow I've managed to write something that people are giving to their partners to help explain what's going on with them, either with anxiety or addiction, or indeed to parents of kids who have anxiety as a way to help both the parent and the kid understand each other a little bit more. So I didn't know that the book was going to do that, but I'm really grateful that the book is doing that. So if you need a copy, you can get it, osherginsberg.com. If you need me, uh, you can get me, send osher email at gmail.com. Until we speak next time, keep breathing, face the fears, beep twice when you're passing on the right, and always wear a helmet. I'll talk to you next week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.